Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. In 1847, there was a riot in Boston by bakers and butchers who were intent on lynching the mad enthusiast of vegetarian diets who promoted whole grain breads. Who was that mad enthusiast? Next, the only substance left after aquamation is also a common dietary supplement. What is it? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Well, a happy Easter and a happy Passover to everyone. I'm George Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense. My background is in chemistry. And as I like to tell you, I believe that chemistry is the central science, the one that ties all the others together. Because if you have a feel for what molecules are all about and what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good idea of what can and cannot happen in the world. So let me repeat those questions once more. In 1847, there was a riot in Boston, and that riot was by bakers and butchers, and they wanted to lynch the mad enthusiast who was promoting a vegetarian diet and was in favor of eating only whole grain bread. And the second question was, the only substance left after aquamation is also a common dietary supplement. What is it? This morning on the trivia show, I did ask a question, and uh, I thought that this would be a puzzler, but I I think I softened up by giving a, a, a clue that maybe I shouldn't have given. The question I asked was, what chemical links Ronald Reagan to spoiled milk in Victorian England? And of course, I'm aiming to try to find questions that cannot be so easily Googled. Uh, But then I had a bit of mercy and and I gave a clue and I said Death Valley days and that gave it away. Anyway, the chemical that links Ronald Reagan to spoiled milk in Victorian England is borax. In the absence of refrigeration, milk in Victorian London spoiled easily and it was often tainted by a bad taste and a bad smell. Enterprising housewives found that adding borax or its acidified derivative, which is boric acid, eliminated the smell and introduced a sweet taste. Unfortunately, it did not eliminate disease-causing bacteria. And by masking the bad smell and the bad taste, it resulted in the death of many children. Furthermore, boric acid itself can cause seizures and neurological problems in children. So what's the connection to Ronald Reagan? The man who would become the 40th president of the US hosted the television series, Death Valley Days, 1964 to 1965. And that in fact was his last acting job before becoming governor of California. The program was sponsored by 20 Mule Team Borax, the company that produced Boraxo, a hand-washing product that was advertised by Reagan. It was um, 
made of uh, 70% borax and 30% soap. The borax adds alkalinity, which helps in dissolving fats, and also adds grit for scrubbing. Reagan's daughter, Patty, appeared in some of the ads, and uh, this uh, product is actually still available today, Boraxo. And just for uh, historic history's sake, I I did order uh, a box of this from um, Amazon, and uh, I'll let you know how well it works in uh, cleaning hands. So the product was Boraxo, and that's what links Ronald Reagan to spoiled milk in Victorian uh, England. Well, uh, it is Passover, and it is Easter, so I want to... uh, have some related stories. And what do we really associate with Easter? Of course, it's eggs. So let's talk about that. Colored eggs, especially because Easter, uh, of course, has all kinds of colored eggs associated with it. Now, but the colored eggs I want to talk about are not the kind that you make by dipping into a dye, uh, but the natural color of eggs. You know how you can tell if a chicken will lay white or brown eggs? Believe it or not, just look at the bird's earlobes. Yes, chickens do have ears, although they're hidden by feathers on the side of the head. Just push these feathers aside, and the openings that serve as ears appear. There's no outer ear, such as we have, but chickens do have earlobes, which can be clearly seen. The color of the lobe varies with the breed of the chicken, ranging from white to almost black. Chickens with white earlobes lay white eggs, um, and they do that exclusively, while birds with dark lobes lay brown eggs. The fascinating Araquana breed of chickens can even have earlobes that are a pale green or blue color. Sure enough, they lay eggs of the corresponding hue. It appears that the same gene that determines the color of the earlobe also determines the color of the egg. The color in turn is determined by the presence of hemoglobin breakdown products called porphyrins. Hemoglobin is the molecule found in red blood cells that transports oxygen. Red blood cells constantly break down and new ones form. During breakdown, hemoglobin is metabolized into porphyrins, which have different colors. The specific way that hemoglobin is metabolized into porphyrins is genetically controlled, meaning that the color of eggs, which is where porphyrins are eventually deposited, is also under genetic control. There is no nutritional difference between brown eggs and white eggs. They are laid by different varieties of chickens. Obviously, there's a chemical difference in the shells. The brown eggs have more of the porphyrins. And these actually fluoresce when exposed to ultraviolet light. And that's an interesting phenomenon. When chickens were first introduced to New England, they were of the brown egg-laying variety. So white egg was likely to have come from somewhere else and was probably not as fresh. This certainly was the case before eggs were transported in refrigerated containers. Chickens in the New York area were always white egg layers. So if New Yorkers wanted fresh eggs, they bought white. Today, of course, eggs can be transported large distances and still stay fresh, but the tradition has been maintained by and large. The Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. advises that eggs be kept at a temperature of um, uh, about 45 Fahrenheit or 7.2 Celsius or under that. Only refrigerated eggs should be purchased, and they should be kept in the carton inside the fridge, not in the fridge doors. 
and X should be used within about 30 days. Always make sure you wash your hands after handling raw eggs, of course. When ordering Caesar salad, make sure the restaurant uses pasteurized eggs. It's not a good idea to eat raw dough containing eggs. Scrambled eggs should not be runny. Over easy should be three minutes on one side, then one on the other. Soft boil until the yolk has started to thicken. Hard boiled eggs should not be unrefrigerated for more than two hours. So there you go. The egg story, all about color and about being careful how you eat them. So have a happy Easter with, uh, with your eggs. And of course, uh, whenever we talk about eggs, we, we have to mention the cholesterol story. The egg yolk contains cholesterol, and that has some impact on blood cholesterol, although not nearly as much as eating saturated fats like, like butter or, or, uh, or, or margarine. And uh, I think it is, uh, if you're on a cholesterol-lowering diet, it's much more important to watch your fat intake than to watch your cholesterol intake. Although I would not say that the cholesterol intake is irrelevant. There was just a recent study that showed that there was a mild increase in, in heart disease in uh, people who ate more cholesterol. All right, we're going to take a break. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I wish I could uh, give you some cutting edge information about the Omicron uh, variety of the virus, but um, I don't know of anything new, stunning that has come out. I can attest to the fact that it is extremely infectious. Uh, I'm just getting over about uh, with it. I think I picked it up uh, in the airport or on the airplane when um, uh, two weeks ago we're away for a week at Club Med in the uh, Dominican Republic. I don't think I caught it there because everything was outdoors. Uh, but uh, uh, And I had a, a negative test before coming back, so it really had to be in the airport or on the airplane in spite of wearing the mask all the time and being as careful as possible. So this thing is very, very contagious. Uh, the question is, um, does it result in a more mild version of, of, uh, of COVID-19? Well, my experience has been that it does. Uh, it was like a bad cold. Uh, it mostly uh, sore throat was the main symptom. I, I never had a fever, never had a headache, but uh, sneezing, coughing, and st I'm still a little bit uh, uh, stuffy. But that was about it. I, I wouldn't even say that it was the worst cold that I've ever had. But this, of course, is after three vaccines. So I think that does make a big difference. It probably does not make a huge difference in terms of, of getting infected, but it makes a very big difference in, in terms of the severity of the illness. And of course, that is corroborated by the um, evidence that is um, out there. Whether or not um, you can get reinfected with this uh, virus more quickly than with the, the previous uh, variants is not clear. But there is some cursory information that that may be the case. 
there are people who have reported being reinfected after uh, two to three months. But again, so far, there really are, are no good studies indicating, uh, indicating that. Uh, the bottom line still is that the vaccine is useful in keeping people out of the hospital in reducing the severity of the of the illness. Of course, what uh, the future will bring, it's impossible to to predict what kind of variants will emerge, and uh, whether or not we will have better vaccines that are more specific to those uh, uh, variants. Anyway, I still do not have any. Uh, answers to my uh, questions. And uh, I thought that we would get this. The only substance left after aquamation is also a common dietary supplement. What is it? Of course, you'll have to know what aquamation is, but that's not difficult to find out. And then I was also asking about a riot in 1847 when bakers and butchers rioted because a man they called a mad enthusiast was about to give a lecture on vegetarianism and uh, on staying away from white bread made by bakers. Who was that mad enthusiast? In fact, there's still a commercial food product that is named after him. So give me a call at 514-790-0800 if you know the answer. And of course, you can also text to 514-800. A very good question from Nick, who is always asking good questions online. Why are some chemicals called forever chemicals, specifically the PFASs, as we call them, the perfluoroalkyl substances. The term forever uh, refers to the fact that these are very difficult to break down in the environment. They are not biodegradable. They will essentially last forever. They're very controversial because in animal studies, they can cause disease. There's some human epidemiological evidence that people who have higher concentrations of these in their blood are more prone to certain conditions. And we all have some in our blood because these are ubiquitous chemicals. They are found in, in uh, food packaging because they prevent moisture and uh, uh, grease from soaking through. They're used in firefighting foams. Uh, they're used in the manufacture of nonstick cookware, of uh, uh, water-resistant uh, clothing. Uh, so they have all kinds of, of, of uses. And it's not surprising that, that we all have some in our body because, as I said, they don't break down in the environment. They get into water supplies. They get into our food. Just because they're present in our bloodstream, though, uh, does not necessarily mean that they are, are, are harmful. But, but uh, based on the animal studies that, that we have seen, uh, it is better to limit our exposure to these. And most uh, fast food manufacturers now are um, finding ways to solve the problem by using different materials in their uh, packaging. So we have seen over the last few years, blood levels in the general population go down. But once again, the term forever refers to the fact that these chemicals do not easily break down in the, uh, in the environment. And of course, uh, we worry about anything that stays around for a long time in the, uh, in the environment. Let me get down to uh, an interesting Passover uh, story. And uh, I've written about this in greater detail on my Facebook page and in our newsletter, uh, the uh, Office for Science and Society newsletter that comes up ev every Saturday. 
And incidentally, you can sign up for that free newsletter. You just go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, so I, I um, talked about matzo balls and I referred to Joey Chestnut, who's uh, a world champion uh, eater. He eats professionally for a living. <laughs> and uh, he is famous, of course, for holding the record of eating 76 Nathan's hot dogs in 10 minutes. And he has other records. He eats chicken wings, uh, pizza, all kinds of stuff. But I refer to him because he holds the world record for eating matzo balls. And believe it or not, Joey has downed 78 matzo balls in eight minutes. That's about 4,000 calories and 2,700 milligrams of cholesterol. Interestingly enough, his blood chemistry seems okay. So he is not affected by the outrageous amount of uh, food that he eats. And he is not overweight either. So he's a very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. But I talked about this because, of course, uh, Passover is the prime time for eating matzo balls. So what are they? Well, there's no matzahs out there galloping around protecting their family jewels from Jewish cooks. To make matzo balls, you need eggs, chicken fat, salt. Uh, instead of chicken fat, you can use oil. And of course, matzah meal, which is just made by grinding up matzah. And you can find all kinds of, of recipes online. It's, it's quite easy to, to do. Uh, matzah is a type of unleavened bread, and it's central to the celebration of Passover. And it's made by mixing flour with water, kneading the dough for no more than 18 minutes, rolling it into a flat sheet and baking it. Why the 18 minute limit before it is all finished? Because after that time, naturally occurring yeast in the dough can start the leavening process, which must be avoided to conform to the story of the Exodus as told in the Bible. And that story, which I think many of you are familiar with, is that the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. And finally, when Moses convinced the Pharaoh to let them go, they had to go so quickly that they didn't have enough time to let their bread rise. They had to bake it quickly. And that was the matzah. So the matzah is a symbol of the liberation from slavery in Egypt. Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about that after the break. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I have had a couple of attempts at answering the question about the mad enthusiast who provoked a riot in Boston in 1847 by bakers and butchers. Someone suggested Dr. Atkins. Well, no, Atkins was certainly not alive in 1847. And the other one was uh, Dr. Kellogg. That's a pretty good guess, actually, a pretty good guess, but it was not Dr. Kellogg. But I can tell you that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was a follower of the gentleman whose name we are after. And the other question, uh, no one has attempted so far, about aquamation and what is left behind after that process has been done with. 
And what is left behind is a dietary supplement. The question is, what is it? Of course, you have to look up what aquamation is, but that should not be too much of a puzzle. Then I've had a couple of people ask me why I decided to travel. Uh, So me of all people, uh, why did I travel? Well, um, everything in life comes down to an evaluation of risk against benefit. And there's no such thing as leading a risk-free life. It's always a question of evaluating. And uh, in this case, uh, I thought that the uh, risk was uh, there, but uh, I was willing to take it because I had not been anywhere, no holidays for over two years, uh, basically working seven days a week. I thought it was time to um, have a little bit of, of relaxation. And uh, there really is no advisory now against travel, so there was, you know, no reason uh, legally not to uh, not to do that. And uh, being triple vaccinated, I, I knew that the chance of a serious reaction is is, is small. And indeed, uh, I did not have a serious reaction. I, I was hoping that I would not, uh, you know, uh, get infected at all, but. Uh, as happened, I did and uh, survived it okay. And I'm not sorry that uh, that I went. I'm not suggesting that people go and and you know if they if they think that it is taking a, a risk. But sometimes in life, you know, you do take risks, and uh, you just have to evaluate what you're going to get back for it. And I'm not quite ready to lead the life of a hermit. And uh, given the fact that uh, it doesn't look like the scourge is, is going away, sometime you just have to bite the bullet and, uh, you know, take the risks. So there's my rationalization uh, for that. Finally, do I do have a correct answer to my question about the 1847 ride in Boston. The mad enthusiast indeed was Sylvester Graham, the man after whom the Graham Cracker is named, although he himself did not invent the Graham Cracker. But Sylvester Graham championed vegetarianism and whole grain bread. And he said that the white bread that was being uh, baked by bakers was poison and that animal foods were poison as well. And as you can imagine, the bakers and butchers in Boston did not take kindly to his lecturing the public on this. And they held a, a demonstration that turned into a riot. And the police were unable to control the crowd until Graham's supporters shoveled slake lime out the window onto the crowd. Slake lime is calcium hydroxide, not a pleasant thing to get on you. And uh, uh, he uh, started a whole industry, Graham did. He had Grahamite rooming houses, Grahamite restaurants, uh, etc. And today, of course, we still have the Graham cracker. All right, so that question has been uh, answered, but we're still left with the acclimation question and what is left behind. And I will now replace the answered question by another one. And this one should be easy. Why does food cook faster in a pressure cooker? So why does food cook faster in a pressure cooker? I told you that I would get back a little bit to the Passover uh, story. And uh, the, the, the 
matzah and why the 18 minute time limit and that was supposedly because the matzah had to be or the, the dough had to be baked very quickly because they had to leave egypt very quickly well a quick background for you here according to the bible sometime around 1700 bc joseph who was a canaanite was sold into slavery in egypt by his brothers who were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite son and uh, that was demonstrated because Jacob, his father, gave him that beautiful multicolored coat, which really annoyed his brothers. And of course, there's a fantastic musical, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Joseph and the uh, Technicolored uh, Dreamcoat. If you haven't seen that, uh, catch it if you can. And there, there are various extracts of it you can find on, on YouTube. Anyway, how did they make colored coats back in those days, 1700 BC? Well, the dyeing of fabrics, of course, is, is an ancient practice. Dates back over 5,000 years. They used turmeric to give yellow, the root of the matter plant for red, indigo leaves for blue, etc. So there were all kinds of natural uh, dyes. Well, Joseph eventually uh, uh, became a, a a favorite of the Pharaoh after he had been sold into slavery in Egypt because he apparently was very good at interpreting dreams. And according to the stories, his descendants uh, uh, multiplied in Egypt and eventually the Pharaoh thought that they became a threat because they were outsiders and they were forced into slavery and they had to make bricks and uh, with straw, the straw, of course, acted, you know, like like in concrete, we have steel, and, you know, straw strengthens the, the, the mud, etc. So there's a story. And uh, eventually, uh, Pharaoh, perhaps Ramses II, so feared the slaves that he decreed bo boys born to them had to be drowned. And that, of course, began the story of Moses, who was saved from drowning in the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And he rose to become a prince of Egypt until he was summoned by God to lead his people out of slavery. And of course, the Pharaoh resisted. He would not let the slaves go. But then Moses demonstrated God's power, turning his staff into a snake at Pharaoh's feet. And uh, then, of course, came the 10 plagues. And eventually, uh, the Pharaoh said, go. And they decided to very quickly leave the land of Egypt and had no time to uh, bake their bread and uh, uh, thus uh, the, the matzah. And uh, God uh, really uh, decided to, to convince the Pharaoh with the 10 plagues. And the 10th plague, of course, was death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. And the Hebrews were told to mark their dwellings with the blood of lambs so the angel of death would pass over their homes and spare their sons. And that, of course, is the origin of Passover. So eventually, of course, Moses let his people uh, out of Egypt and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. He got the Ten Commandments and uh, the sea was the red sea was parted so they would pass through and you know all the miracles if you've seen the movie the ten commandments which of course was a wonderful movie the uh, the fact of course is that there's no record of any hebrew slavery in egypt and the egyptians were meticulous about keeping records and there's no archaeological evidence of wandering through the desert for 40 years by more than 600,000 men and their families, as the Bible describes. They would have left some fragments of pottery or something uh, behind. And certainly they did not build the pyramids uh, because the uh, pyramids were built long before the story of the uh, Exodus. 
Well, does it matter that the historical account of the Exodus is not factual? To me, it doesn't. It's a great story of liberation from slavery, a metaphor that can be applied to many aspects of modern life. Slavery can be literal, political, or economic. You can be a slave to drugs, potentially harmful ideologies, or to conspiratorial thinking. So although I'm not very observant, I don't think the Red Sea actually parted. I don't think Moses' staff turned into a snake, but I do celebrate Passover because commemorating the story of the Exodus, whether factual or metaphorical, represents a triumph of right over wrong and reminds us to be constantly vigilant about those who would enslave us one way or another. Let's just, let's check traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I forgot that the uh, pressure cooker question was actually answered last week. Yes, uh, uh, the reason that uh, it cooks faster because the boiling point can be increased. Under pressure, boiling point increases, and in a pressure cooker, the boiling point of water can go up to 120 degrees Celsius. And an elevation of about 20 degrees can speed up chemical reactions fourfold. So a potato that cooks in about 20 minutes will cook in five, uh, even faster, of course, if you cut it into smaller pieces. And um, as we know, at sea level, water boils at approximately 100 degrees. But at the top of Mount Everest, because of the reduced pressure, it would only be about 70 degrees. So that can make it very difficult to get a decent cup of tea when you're at the top of Mount Everest. So for those of you who are contemplating climbing Mount Everest, uh, you know that you won't be getting a decent cup of tea uh, up there. We have Wendy on the line, hopefully with an answer to my aquamation question. Wendy. Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, I'm just taking a guess, but could it be a form of calcium? Yes. Can you be a bit more specific? Okay. um, All right. Tell me. All right. First of all, tell me what aquamation is. It's a form of disposal of a body. So like cremation is a form this uses water um and i believe pressure to mm-hmm. um to dispose of the body it's another form of uh yeah you're you're certainly end on of the life, right track the, what, uh, yeah yes so the, basically uh, go ahead the stuff that's left behind is calcium phosphate okay and the clue that i gave is that it's also available as a dietary supplement and if you look in the you know health food store or in the pharmacy, you'll see a number of calcium supplements, and uh, many of them are calcium phosphate. Some others are calcium carbonate. It doesn't much matter as long as it contains calcium. Okay, now uh, just to make sure that nobody gets uh, uh, you know flustered over this, the the calcium phosphate that you buy as a dietary supplement is not made from the disposed bodies of of people. All right, but aquamation, as you suggested, is indeed an alternative to burial and to cremation. And the process is based on what we call alkaline hydrolysis. 
the body is placed in a, in a, a vessel. It's filled with water and potassium hydroxide, about 5% potassium hydroxide. It's pressurized and heated to a temperature of about 160 degrees. And again, because it's under pressure, you can heat it to a temperature that is higher than the boiling point of, of water. So at this temperature, the body is effectively broken down into its chemical components, and it takes about four to six hours. And you get a, a green-brown tinted liquid that contains amino acids and, and uh, peptides and various sugars and, and, and minerals. And um, what remains behind is the skeleton. But that skeleton becomes a, sort of a white, porous um, construct. And it can be quite readily uh, crushed and ground up into a powder. And that powder is actually calcium phosphate. Uh, it could be used as a dietary supplement, but I think it would not be ethical to, to do that. It would not be very acceptable by the public. But this ash can be returned to the next of kin, you know, uh, in an urn, or it can be spread like, like the remnants of, of cremation. Uh, it can be spread on, on, you know, somewhere where you want to fertilize soil. And um, this alkaline hydrolysis has a number of, of benefits in terms of, uh, you know, environmentalism. It uses relatively little electricity, so it requires less energy than uh, cremation. Uh, Flame-based cremation is actually very demanding environmentally. Uh, you have to use a lot of heat to uh, burn up a body. And uh, that, of course, means that there's a lot of carbon dioxide that is released into the uh, environment. So this, uh, this process of acclimation was originally developed as a method to process animal carcasses into, into plant food. And uh, it dates back to about 1888. There, there are other benefits as well. Uh, the body doesn't have to be embalmed so that uh, you know, you're not using formaldehyde, which is a potentially toxic uh, substance. There's no mercury that is released from dental uh, amalgam uh, in cremation. If anyone has uh, fillings, then uh, uh, the mercury goes into the air, and that is, is not insignificant. So there, there are reasons for acclimation in terms of environmentalism. As far as religion goes, uh, most religions are not particularly accepting of this because they look on it as defiling uh, the body. But uh, it is legal to do, and it is legal to do in Quebec. Uh, there are a couple of mortuaries that will do this. Uh, I'm not sure what the cost is, but I think it is less than a, a traditional uh, funeral. And um, you know, there, there certainly may be some people who uh, uh, do not think that this is the wrong way to go. Uh, they think that it is indeed the right way to go because their body will end up uh, benefiting the environment and not being a burden on the environment, such as uh, cremation may be. So it's just an interesting way of uh, disposing uh, of the body. There are all kinds of businesses now, you know, that that focus on on uh, alternatives to 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 burial, and some of them even um, make use of uh, of the material that is left over to create jewelry. For example, it's possible to take the remnants of of cremation and under high pressure uh, convert it into uh, into diamond.
and uh, some people wear their department one departed ones around their neck in the form of of jewelry. I suppose each to his own, but it's uh, interesting to see that science has entered the body disposal business as well. Well, we're uh, just about to dispose of the time that was available uh, for us here today. We have run uh, out of it. But once again, uh, I would like to wish all of you out there a happy Easter, uh, a happy Passover, and uh, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.